Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. September 7th, 2023, the Is Biden the Last Politician edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. Emily Bazelon, you are here of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello. Hello, David. And John Dickerson of CBS Primetime celebrated his one-year anniversary as hosting CBS Primetime this week, and he's probably hung over from that raucous celebration. But uh, John is not here. He's actually out reporting. But that's okay, because in his place, we have Frank Four, staff writer at The Atlantic, and the author of a brilliant new history of the Biden administration's first two years, the last politician. Frank, welcome back to the GabFest. Honor of a lifetime to think that you ha- I'm up to filling uh, John's chair while he's out doing the shoe leather work. We get to sit here and, and be pundits while he's doing the real business of the trade. So thank you. So this week on the GabFest, our first topic is Biden toast. We're going to talk to Frank about his book, about Biden's accomplishments, and about why he is rematching up so poorly against Trump, at least at this moment. Then the Ukrainian counteroffensive is mired. What will happen next in the war and in the geopolitical game of pickup sticks that it has caused? And then a fascinating new story in the New York Times makes the case that Americans are losing faith in colleges and graduate schools as a path forward for themselves and their children. What is going on? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And GabFest listeners, before we go any further, a reminder, we have a live show coming up in Madison, Wisconsin on Wednesday, October 25th at the Majestic Theater in downtown Madison. It's on Wednesday, the 25th at 7.30 p.m. There's a VIP happy hour from 6 to 7. There's still some tickets left for the show. I'm not sure if there are any tickets left for the happy hour. You can find out by going to slate.com slash GabFest live. That's slate.com slash GabFest live. We're really excited to do our first show uh, in Wisconsin, and um, we're looking forward to being at the Majestic, which is a really cool theater. And I'm looking forward to visiting the Isthmus, the Isthmus, which I cannot say for the first time. Go to slate.com slash GabFest live to get tickets to our show on October 25th. This week marks the publication of Frank Forrest, The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Frank's book is, I would probably the first history of the Biden administration, which has been way more consequential and event-packed than many people expected, even as Biden himself has been perhaps less visible, less feisty, less cogent, and less energetic than some of his predecessors. So Frank, congratulations. We want to talk about this wonderful book and about where Biden finds himself 14 months out from a re-election matchup, most likely against Donald Trump. So The Last Politician is a very specific a very pointed title. And it is kind of poignant in a week when Bill Richardson died, when Mitch McConnell has been struggling with his health. What do you mean to say when you say that Biden is the last politician? Over time, we've, uh, as, a, as a society, have turned against politics. We never really respected politicians. There was always something we considered phony and artificial about politicians that they'd say one thing in public to get your vote, then do another thing in private. In the last two presidents before Biden, both Trump and Obama ran as these outsiders who were not politicians who came in to try to shock the system, which they viewed as corrupt and and sclerotic. Um, And Biden is nothing but a creature of the system. He's, He's been a politician his whole life. I think a lot of the things that we associate with the burlesque version of a politician are things that you know, Joe Biden does all the time. I mean, he tells the same stories over again. There's the same exaggerations that he implants in his stories over and over. Um, he's this guy who, when you talk, when he talks, you feel like he's trying to flatter you. Um, but I, um, and I certainly started my book with kind of a dim view of Joe Biden. I, I remember when I was uh, 24 years old, the first time I got Joe Biden on the phone. Um, and I was so excited because he's somebody who'd run for president. I'd watched him in the Bork hearings and the Clarence Thomas hearings. And uh, even at that young age, five minutes into the call, I was like, get this guy off the phone. He's never going to stop talking. But as I started to report on this book, I came away with a deeper respect 
not just for Joe Biden, but for the practice of politics and that politics isn't just a profession. It's kind of an ethos. And uh, it's a way it's it which insists on uh, the virtues of persuasion, the necessity of horse trading. There's an underlying uh, set of cultural practices there that um, I think are in the end essential for democracies to function. And my concern is, is that this age of anti-politics is essentially going to kill the archetype that Joe Biden represents. So you tell good stories in your book about how politics is unfolding in the White House. Um, can you give us an example of one of them that you feel like illustrates this point of what the value of politics is and how it works? I mean, you just take something as elemental as the Oval Office. And there was this rap on Obama, which I never really gravitated to, where people would accuse Obama of not inviting Republican congressmen over to the White House to watch the Super Bowl with him. And there was like all this bad feeling that was expressed to Obama. Um, and it was said to be part of the reason why certain legislative things for him were ultimately a struggle. And I always dismiss that. But Biden has a very different view of the way that the Oval Office needs to be structured and turned into this home court advantage that he has. And so he had the historian John Meacham help him design the Oval Office so that it became this set piece where there are um, portraits from the American past and, and, and sculptures that are set up so he can use them for narrative purposes. There's a picture of MLK next to an RFK bust. And it's about how RFK was the guy who ordered the wiretaps of MLK, but then ultimately became a champion for civil rights, which he uses in order to explain the potential for human change, etc. And so, I mean, through, through my book, I kind of show how He's always using the Oval Office as his home court where he brings people in in order to conduct these bargaining sessions with them. I mean, Frank, there are two dissonances in the Biden that you describe and the Biden that Americans seem to welcome. One is that your portrait in, in The Last Politician is largely successful, the infrastructure, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, uh, rallying the world against the, the Russian invasion. And yet he is wildly or fairly unpopular as a president, despite all those successes that you would identify. That's number one. The other is the distance between, I think, the media's or depiction of Biden or the public sense of Biden as doddering, old, lacking energy, kind of incoherent, uh, not very visible. And your portrait of him sometimes, it's the case you just gave with McCarthy, as a, a sort of master psychologist and master manipulator of other people uh, pulling the strings in the important ways. What is either the media getting wrong or the public getting wrong about this? Or Joe Biden getting wrong about this. I mean, I think it's the other thing. I mean, the, I, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, one, I think in the title, Last Politician, there is a sense of being out of sync with the zeitgeist. And I think that there is something about Joe Biden that doesn't have mastery over communications in modern contemporary American society. It's it's you know Trump, who's only a couple years younger than him, um, you know has a distinct way of and it, this this in the weeds understanding of social media and TV in a way that Biden is kind of stuck maybe in like a 1980s understanding of of media. Um, secondly, there's all these insecurities that Biden has about his own public persona and kind of understandable ones that he has this reputation, this justifiable re reputation for being a gaffe machine. And so when he goes and he does an interview or a press conference, he can he can do something brilliant for an hour and a half, but there will be that one line that comes out wrong and that becomes the headline. And so that's his public appearances always carry that risk. And so there's been this tendency to not let him take that risk. And so what's filled the void is this impression, which is, um, you know, he walks in like he walks like an elderly man. His voice has changed, so it, he doesn't talk in the same sort of way that he did 10 years ago. It's a little bit more raspy. Uh, it, it feels older. And so even if 
behind closed doors and on paper, he's had this very energetic presidency where he's deep in the weeds and he's doing everything, you know, most of the things you'd want a chief executive to be doing, none of that translates into public. So what do they do about that? I mean, do they put him out on the campaign trail and take more risks about gaffes? Because it does seem like there is this gap between the accomplishments of the administration, you know, in a sort of like pretty basic good government way and Americans' perception that the country and the economy are going in the wrong direction or just sort of loss of faith in his energy. And it's hard to see how, well, I mean, lots of people hate Trump, but if Biden has to actually win this election as opposed to just uh, not lose, it's hard to see how those aren't major constraints for him. But do you think, Emily, can I have you answer your question before Frank does? I mean, do you think that Biden should go out and campaign? Do you think that would benefit him? If Assuming that Trump is his opponent. Yeah, I think he has to. Because of the way the media environment works now and the vacuum he creates by not being there. I mean, maybe I'm too caught up in the media coverage myself as someone who like is part of the press and thinks about that and people's perceptions who are not you know, caught up in all that coverage are different. But I just feel like when he's not there, the assumptions about him are not helpful to him in terms of his favorability ratings and and winning votes. One thing is he's actually there. You know, he gives a lot of speeches. He's he's in public quite a bit. um, And yet it doesn't seem to manage to break through. So it's not like he's not campaigning. It's not like he's sitting in his basement this time. He's actually... Uh, quite active uh, in giving speeches. One of the most interesting things about rolling this book out is that I feel like I've had more discussions about aging in the last two days than I've ever had in my life. And it's made me start to think about aging as a cultural concept in the way in which people's perceptions of Joe Biden are not always just about Joe Biden, that they're also about their own parents and their own grandparents. And One of the things that's so hard about this discussion for Biden is that people age in different ways. And also, it's not as binary as everybody seems to want to make it. There's not a sell-by date for a human being. And Joe Biden has, like, as he gets older, there's certain things that he does less well. I mean, I I don't know if he ever was concise with his storytelling, but like his story- Apparently not your 24-year-old self would tell us. Yes. Um, his, uh, his, his stories kind of lose the plot sometimes in a way that make you think, oh, this is like a very grandfatherly story that I'm listening to right now. And then he'll turn around and five minutes later, give you this very masterful discussion about American strategy in the Indo-Pacific that's so detailed and so nuanced and so layered. And you think, oh, this is the benefit of wisdom. This is a guy who's like been thinking about this issue for decades. Like I want this guy at the helm. We don't know what the alternative to Biden is. And the alternative to Biden could be somebody who would perform, who's not up to the task of taking on Trump, who's who's never debated him on stage before. Speaking of that, actually, one of the really interesting things in, in The Last Politician is someone who is quite marginal, the vice president, Kamala Harris. Why do you think she is so... Uh, peripheral to the story of the first two years of the Biden administration and why, given these problems that Biden has with his image and age, why is she so still so invisible and so unimportant to the story they're telling for the next election? Every vice president is subjected to some version of this tale where they're peripheral and marginal and struggle to carve out a political identity because it's, there's something about the job that, squashes an individual's identity. And also, she's a former vice president's vice president. And um, he has all of these understandings that he brings to her job. And like every every president treats their vice president in kind of a sadistic sort of way. And so Biden gives her this assignment to go to Central America to deal with this problem, because it was the problem that he was assigned by Obama to deal with. And so it's, uh, you know, filled with all sorts of, of peril. Um, at the beginning of the administration, um, co- people forget about how, you know, what COVID times were like. And so during COVID times, she was not able to travel 
Um, and so she was stuck in the White House and she would go with Biden from meeting to meeting. And there, there are all sorts of interesting ways in which they became very, they were probably pretty similar to begin with, even despite all of the many obvious differences between the two of them as human beings. But uh, they tend to approach politics asking the same sorts of very practical questions. They're both people who have these insecurities that are obvious to everybody around them. You know, Joe Biden's, I think, go back to the plagiarism scandal that he had in the sense that there was something artificial or that he was being uh, fed his lines. And so Biden, Biden always seeks to overprepare to have mastery over the things that he talks about. Um, his pre- Obama prep sessions for a press conference would almost never happen because Obama felt like he was in complete command of the material. Biden prep sessions go on forever because he just wants to go deeper and deeper into the weeds so that he's sure he has understanding. Harris does something kind of similar where she's so afraid as a historic first that she's going to get walloped by the press that she then will just, you know, tear up her schedule to, to over, over prepare in a Biden like sort of way. I think what she struggled to do initially, and it's gotten better since my book closes is to carve out a sense of uh, political identity in the job. I think she was reluctant to serve as the emissary to the democratic base because she just didn't want to be pigeonholed in that sort of way. But then the Dobbs decision comes down overturning Roe v. Wade and Biden for his own reasons, is not able to speak to the abortion issue uh, in quite a persuasive sort of way. And she is able to speak about abortion in a persuasive sort of way, which is a deep political necessity for the Democratic Party. So I think that she has uh, belatedly uh, started to really find, find a voice that works for her. But it happened after she'd already been defined in the press's mind. So, Frank, with the election not exactly imminent, but within sights, what are you going to be looking for in the next several months? I'm really curious to see how Biden now forced to confront the age issue uh, because the polling is so overwhelming on this because he gets asked, his people get asked about it all the time. He's got to take it on, I think, in a much more direct way than he's ever done. And so I suspect he's going to try to lean into it and argue that age equals wisdom equals a better president. And I think there, there's there's good justification for making that sort of claim, but I think he's going to struggle to uh, render that claim persuasively to the American people because it's just such a hard claim to make. And I'm really interested to see if this moment that we're in where the media is really kind of whipped up into this frenzy over the age question is just a, is just a passing storm or if it, if it settles and if it settles and if his polling numbers are consistently poor, then I think another sort of conversation is going to start to develop about whether he runs again. Someone said, you know, uh, that Biden, he's getting old, man. I tell you what, well, guess what? Guess what? I tell you know the only thing that comes today is a little bit of wisdom. I've, I've, I've been doing this longer than anybody, and I guess what? I'm going to continue to do it with your help. So we haven't talked before we move on to our next topic. I just want to say a couple more words about the last politician, which is such a fun read. It is a history of the Biden administration, which you know you might think, well, I need to know that. But it's Frank, you've done an incredible job, just sort of like putting us in the room giving us a forward momentum through these stories, telling us stories that we kind of know, but giving us so much detail and so much richness about them that we didn't have, uh, that it's it's just a very gripping and fun book to read. So uh, you all, GabFest listeners, should read it for that reason, as well as it being a really wise book, too. So there you go. Thank you. Speaking of which, GabFest listeners, you should stick around for our bonus segment today because we're going to be talking about in our bonus segment for Slate Plus listeners, how Frank reported the last politician. It's a kind of an extraordinary feat. He talked to so many people in the Biden administration and out of it. And it's just, it's a, it's a kind of quite comprehensive story of something that is ongoing. And so we're going to find out how he did it and how he would do it if he had to do it over again. I stockpiled uh, a fun story or two. 
Oh, oh, that. But you have to be a Slate Plus member. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. But if you are not a Slate Plus member, take the chance this moment to go join. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today and get that stockpiled story, a story just for you, Slate Plus members. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. The Russian invasion of Ukraine continues to unsettle the world in ways both directly and indirectly. It is kind of the fulcrum of the world's politics at the moment. This week, Zelensky announced he would replace his defense minister amid a very slow-moving counteroffensive and allegations of corruption in the defense ministry. Putin, meanwhile, is preparing to meet with North Korea's leader and to be seeking ammunition and other arms from North Korea, which is just a weird thing to say. Um, Europe is worried about upcoming elections in Slovakia. Like, whoever worried about upcoming elections in Slovakia? But that those elections could put a Putin ally at the head of the government there. Uh, Tony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was back in Ukraine this week, in part trying to deal with the, the after effects of Russia scotching the grain deal that was letting Ukraine exports leave Black Sea ports. Frank, you have been to Ukraine. You've reported from there. The this kind of counteroffensive, the spring offensive that was touted, we're now in the fall practically, and it appears to be a pretty grinding and miserable stalemate of war right now. Is there anything that you see that suggests that the dynamics of the war on the ground could change? There is some evidence now that in this Zaporizhia access, they've started to make um, some progress and that there's now it's not totally unthinkable that to imagine that they could accomplish this goal of severing the Russian line. Um, it's just going to take forever for them to do it. They're going to lose an enormous number of lives in the course of doing it. Um, but they've started to make some of the initial breakthroughs and it's just, it's taken so much longer for them to make those breakthroughs than I think people anticipated in part because they were conditioned by the success, the quick success of the first Ukrainian counteroffensive to believe that Russian morale was so, so low that this would be the type of thing where once you you, hit, you applied the sledgehammer to them, they would break. But that's not the case. And the Ukrainians have been trained by the U.S. to conduct some very, very sophisticated operations. It's called combined arms fire, where you have to get your infantry in sync with the, your, your artillery. Um, and we're able to do that with F-16s and, and an air force, which the Ukrainians don't have. So we're asking them to do something very doctrinally sophisticated. A former Pentagon official I, I asked about this told me that there are only two armies in the world that could effectively break through the Russian front lines, the U.S. and the Israeli. And there are not too many armies that could do that, especially not ones that have been trained so quickly. You're saying that the only two armies in the world that could break through these lines are the United States Army and the Israeli Army, neither, neither of which are fighting. This is the war that is being fought. Is like the, the Russians have built these extraordinary defensive positions across the area they've occupied in Ukraine. And we have learned since, you know, since the Civil War, certainly since the trench warfare of World War One, that hardened defensive positions are just incredibly hard to overcome unless you have a, some element of surprise or some game-changing weapon, which it doesn't appear that exist. And so, like, no one wants to say, at least no one that I know wants to say, okay, well, this is a sort of, this is the, these are the lines that we have and the peace settlement should be negotiated based on these lines. But it's also the case, like, you don't want people to die pointlessly for years and for Ukraine to exhaust itself, for the U.S. to spend tens of billions of dollars supporting a futile effort. And, you know, you just reported on the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was a, a kind of conclusion that the United States made that this was an, an untenable position for the U.S. military to be in. At what moment does it become feasible to think about what is a negotiated settlement to this war? I mean, maybe it's today if the Ukrainians started the negotiations, but it's like, it feels your description of that war is something which which has no, it's that it's grinding and it's going to take an incredibly long time to cut through these Russian lines. It does not give me hope, really. It could happen. I mean, the clustering munitions that we gave them seem to be making some sort of meaningful difference in the, in the counteroffensive. Um, 
uh, we may Russian morale could break at any given moment. You had the Prigozhin coup mounted, it, but it, that was that was a great counterfactual of the war. Now, what would happen if he'd gone all the way? I think there are scenarios where the Ukrainians managed to punch through and achieve their victory. Everything they've done so far has been so unlikely and in many ways against the odds. And the problem with diplomacy is that it can't just be Zelensky in goodwill saying, here's a negotiated settlement. You have to make a settlement with Putin that you think you can trust. It takes two people to come to the table. And it feels like we're far away from that. Where do you think, Emily, the American center of gravity, political center of gravity is on this? How long does America's unadulterated support for Ukraine hold, assuming that things don't change on the ground very quickly in one way or another? I mean, I think as long as Biden is president, we're going to continue to do what we've been doing. Um, I don't think the American public has had some like real shift or loss of faith. It's more just that whenever a war grinds on, it takes a tremendous toll and people wish it were otherwise and would rather move on from it. Right. Um, and I do think the Republicans are divided on this. Like some of them are hawkish and pro-Ukrainian and anti-Russia and a kind of classic, you know, Ronald Reagan era way. And others of them have really moved into this other view of Putin that, of course, is Donald Trump's view. I mean, it just seems to me like this is all about our election in 2024 in terms of what American policy is. I think actually the election in 2024 will change a significant amount of the Republican Party behavior on this issue that you have uh, you have candidates who are kind of front running candidates who are buying space for the anti-Ukrainian war line. And I think that that's probably the uh, the latent sentiment in a lot of the House Republicans. And the more permission that it has to become more mainstream, I think the more you'll see Republicans digging in on this. Really fascinating article by Paul Tuff in the New York Times Magazine this week. Americans are losing faith in the value of college. Whose fault is that? There has been, as Tuff reports, an incredible decline in the number of Americans who say a college degree is very important. It's dropped to 41% from 74% of young adults a decade ago. 74% of young adults a decade ago said it was very important. Now only 41% do. Also a huge, huge drop in the number of Americans who prefer that their children go to a four-year college. It's now under 50% of American parents prefer their children to go to a four-year college. So Emily, what is happening? I think there are two things, and I thought Paul's piece did a really good job of dissecting both of them. So one is a kind of economic bar bargain and the way in which that's changed. And um, what Paul is writing about is the way in which the wealth dividend for going to college is only helping people who already have a lot of wealth, basically, that this question of um, who benefits from college is part of a long line of issues in which the people who already have a lot of things in American society do better and the people who have fewer things do not. The main cause of this is just price, that if you have to pay a ton to go to your four-year college, if you take out a lot of debt and you started out in a worse financial position, then it's going to be harder to make that investment pay off over your lifetime as opposed to people who can easily afford it um, or who go to really good schools in which there's a lot of financial aid and they don't actually have to pay. Okay, and actually, just to pause there, one of the very interesting things this piece does is, is it, which this academics have done is like no longer look at this as an, as college as an income question, but as a wealth question, which is that if you look at college as an income question, it's clear you should go to college. Like there's no ambiguity. You will earn more if you go to college. But by looking at as wealth, like if, what do you accumulate over the course of your life? You can see that going to college, you, you know, can be a great investment. I'm sure each of us would say it probably was for our case, but that for on average, it does not leave you in a better wealth position than if you didn't go to college, because most people who go to college accumulate so much debt. And especially if you go to college and don't graduate, you are deeply fucked. Which I think we knew that part. But yeah, I mean, basically, when you look at only the wage premium for going to college, you're looking only at the upside. You're not looking at the cost. When you factor in the cost, then you have this overall picture of wealth that is 
not good for especially for people who don't go to elite schools, both because of the, you know, job employment, high salary premium that comes from those schools, and also because those schools are providing more financial aid. So there's a sort of double edged sword here, which is deeply frustrating. There's the uh, secondary question about the prestige of American higher education, which is that it's become polarized, just like everything else in American life. And that after 2015, as the whole discourse about wokeism starts to explode, the prestige of American higher education starts to decline, whereas it had been something that had been universally. Just as I send a co- uh, my, my first daughter off to college, the thing that I keep thinking about is that she lives in this world where uh, AI is just about to explode and how you know liberal arts education is going to have to adapt hard to this new world. And um, then I hear in other parts of my life when I do kind of wonkish reporting about how it's the people who can who have tra- who can do trades, who who can actually do practical things, building things are going to be in such high demand. I mean I wonder how much any of that becomes subtextual in um, people's feelings towards college? Yeah, that's a great question. That's like the next horizon challenge. I want to go back to your point about politics because, I mean, of course you're right that a lot of the disaffection with universities is political and that conservatives and Republicans are suspicious of what's happening in these schools. I also do think it really matters that there are so few conservatives on the faculty at so many schools. And that is something that's really changed in our lifetimes. It matters in terms of what it feels like to be part of a university community. And I think it does make a difference in how welcome people feel if they're Republican or conservative or just don't think about politics very much. And then they either show up or their kids show up on campus, or in some other way, they're confronted with it. I just feel like it's important to remember that that alienation like, really does stem in part from something that's real and a, a shift on the campuses. Although, that is that true if you are going to University of Nebraska? When you are a student at University of Ma- Nebraska, do you feel surrounded by people? I think your peers, you're not I, I think it's very unlikely you, you feel surrounded in the way that you do if you go to Yale when you're, both your peers and your professors are going to be all conservatives. I'm not sure that feels quite as as alienating at the universities that most people actually attend. Well, neither of us have spent any time recently at the University of Nebraska, so we're speculating. But the faculty and the administration matters, right? And the people who train for academic jobs tend to be on the left, right? And they tend to come from um, universities where that's self-perpetuating. So even if your your peer student body is more middle of the road or conservative politically, the people who are in power, who are deciding what you're going to study, who or you go to talk to if you have problems, like those people are setting a tone for the campus that I don't think you can totally discount. One point that I really want to, I want to make, which I was thinking about as I was reading this tough article, is that you can, you can make a very strong case that is economically irrational for any individual to attend college. Any I mean, it person. really depends on say, the situation and like debt well, you and can, all that stuff. But Right. But you can definitely say it for an individual basis, like there are reasons why an individual should not attend college. But it is economically catastrophic if everyone made that choice. Like it, it can be the case that it's economically rational for one person not to go to college. It cannot be the case that it's economically irrational for, for large groups of people not to go to college. Because even if the wealth premium like is hitting people and those people are, end up worse off, the professions requiring college and graduate degrees drive the economy. They are drive economic growth. And they... It, Societies where people stop going to universities or where they go to universities in lower numbers are societies that grind down, that get poorer, that suffer. And we definitely don't want to be in that situation. Can I spin spin your apocalyptic scenario out one step further? Which that just then means that the professions become even more liberal, even more on one side of the partisan divide and disconnected from uh, the other part of the country. Yeah. So I guess I... I had two thoughts about that reading Paul Tuff's piece. I mean, of course you're right, David. And the obvious fix is, will you start making it cheap or free again? We had that a few decades ago and it worked great. 
lots of people went to school and there was a lot of upward social mobility associated with that. So let's stop having the sticker price be so insanely high. Um, how you actually do that, I think, is kind of complicated. So that because even if you know you have forgiveness of loans or more government funding, you need to make sure that the schools aren't just like capturing that new income stream, um, right, in a way that doesn't actually provide more value. So in some ways, that solution seems like it's right there, if tricky to actually implement. The other side of it, though, that I feel confused about is the question of credentialing. Like, is what's happening that as more people have college degrees, the value of that degree for any one person becomes lower because then employers have to start looking for other markers to make sure that someone, you know, has the skills or the the network connections they're looking for. It's a little hard for me to tell. And so is there a sort of mismatch economically now where we have a lot of people coming out of school with college degrees that have some value, but not quite enough value. Because if the, their wealth isn't going up on average, then that suggests that like something is off here, right? Yeah. And also this disconnect between the mania that everyone in our own social classes feels about getting into college in the sense of uh, the existential sense that this is the thing that matters absolutely the most in the world for determining uh, success in life is so disconnected from the idea of success out there in the rest of America. If if I were king, here's what I would do. If I were king, I would I would have a um, maybe a five point plan to remake American higher education in the following ways. Number one, massive like PR campaign plus public funding to hype two year colleges and practical degrees, like just like pour a ton of money in, into any program, which is like definitely super vocational. And you, in two years, you have a, you have a practical talent that you can then take to a, a, a job. Number one, number two, I would have a public shaming campaign, like to change HR practices in this country. So you do not look at the names of colleges that job applicants attended. You would not, that would not, you would not be allowed to look at the name of the college that people attended. Number three, I would have like it would open the visa process so that anyone who who wants to go to college here can come to go to college here and then to work here for three years after graduation, not just like a year as it is now, but for three years and get expedited green card access. I would fund all this by taxing private university endowments. I would tax the shit out of out of the rich university endowments and like make it, and that's how that's how I'd get the buy-in from the conservatives. Like I would just say, we're now gonna tax these these hoity-toity people. Um, and they're going to, they're going to fund the expansion of college education more widely. And then maybe I would actually also pick like a couple of professions every year that are drastically short of qualified workers. And I would loan forgive anyone who, who was in that profession immediately, really simply. That would be my plan. Plots king for a day. There we go. Yeah, I, I do. I find the whole, um, idea kind of of tithing, uh, to be both, uh, the the idea that you, you know this thing that Mitch Daniels is doing at Purdue, where he's you, you follow this, where um, he basically the university I think either forgives your tuition if you uh, start earning, and then they get a share essentially of your salary moving forward. I, I don't think that that's exactly the right solution because it feels like a form of indentured, but it does feel like there has to be some sort of alternative mechanism for financing college. I mean, there's the public alternative, but higher education is just so expensive as, um, as, as an enterprise. And I think the costs need to be curbed. The, the, um, David Graeber, the late great anarchist anthropologist wrote a book called bullshit jobs. And the number one example in his, uh, uh, cast of bullshit jobs was the university administrator and just the sheer amount of bloat that exists in these institutions that have ballooned over time is ridiculous and it drives cost. And there's no, it, it, so I'd add something in the Platzian plan to curb uh, the cost of administration. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder what Dean Bazelon thinks about that. <laughs> Assistant Dean. <laughs> just don't send Assistant all those Dean. students to my door. No, I think that they're, I, they're, um, 
we've created an expectation that the students are the customers and that they deserve service in all these different ways. And I think it's gotten harder to separate the actually important kinds of service, like making sure if you're having mental health problems that you get help, et cetera, from the things that are more like fussy or luxury items. Um, and you see a kind of mix of that because people like really good food in the dining halls, et cetera, et cetera. And then there becomes a kind of you know, arms race among the schools to be supplying that. And if you don't have all those kind of fancy things like really nice gyms, then you have trouble attracting the students who can pay full fare. It's um, as a new parent or uh, just about to be a new parent, the thing that I'm struck by is how much attention is being uh, – university is casting in my direction in order to make me feel good about paying so much money. So it feels like – they're bloating. They're creating these massive operations in order to hold my hand um, to make me part ways with my seventy grand or whatever I'm paying. And also, I think hopefully to make you part ways with your kid because they've had trouble actually getting parents to separate. So I think at least some of the intent is to reassure you, so then you actually let your daughter have her own experience, which I'm sure is your plan anyway. I'm going to just leave this. I'm sure I've said this on the GabFest before because I say it all the time. And Emily has definitely heard me say this same thing like seven times, which is that one of the things that drove me fucking crazy when my daughter was uh, an undergraduate at Yale was that she would talk to me sometimes. And she was like, gone to an event and she'd be like, oh, it's great. And they got all this great free food. And I'd be like, that food is not free. The food <laughs> is not free. The food is in the $70,000 tuition that I'm paying for you to go to the school. Like they're not giving you that food. They're just charging me for that food. Yeah. And and all the random texts and emails I get where you just see Yale do something that seems not essential to you. And you're like, wait a second, that's my tuition money. Frank, try not (laughs) to bring that attitude toward you. It'll grow you a lot of gray hairs, make you bitter. Thank you. This is very useful. (laughs) All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Uh, Emily, when you're um, enjoying the beginning of the semester, having taught a taught a class, no classes. I'm not teaching this semester. Having not taught a class, just sitting around relaxing of an afternoon in the in the gloaming in New Haven. What are you going to be chattering about? I'm really <laughs> interested in the latest plot twist in the Fulton County prosecution, the RICO prosecution of Donald Trump and his 18. 18- Um, in their prosecutor's view, co-conspirators. So the latest twist is that the judge has said that Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro, who are lawyers um, charged in this RICO plot, can exercise their speedy trial rights and have a trial in October. He said they're going to be tried together. They did not want to be tried together because they are accused of um, participating in very different aspects of the plot. So they are going to go to trial together. The government is talking about putting on like 150 witnesses. The other 17 people want no part of this speedy trial, right? And some of them are trying to get removed to federal court. And of course, the prosecution is saying, well, this whole 19 uh, defendant indictment is one conspiracy. So we need to try the whole thing together. They were actually saying that, you know, Everyone should show up in October um, for this trial, which, of course, wasn't really going to happen. But I'm just really curious if this October date holds in some kind of fashion, we're going to get this enormous preview of all this evidence um, that could really have an effect on the future cases. Or, of course, one of the people who's trying to get removed to federal court could win, get to federal court, and then everything could wind up in federal court. So I'm just it's just a procedural bonanza of different kind of crazy choices going on in this case, given its volume and scope and import. Frank, what is your chatter? I get asked uh, quite a bit about uh, what I think about Lionel Messi's arrival in the United States. And I have a very contrarian view about this because uh, if this is an acceptable subject for cocktail chatter. For but sure. Messi- soccer. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, and you right. get asked because you wrote a book about soccer. Uh, yes. And so... Um, there's been all this enthusiasm about Messi's arrival here, and he's put on these magisterial sorts of performances where he just runs rampant on the field. And to me, it's just evidence of the total inferiority of Major League Soccer, that when you take the best player in the world and you match him up against the um, a lot of the players who play for MLS clubs, 
they're simply not able to to contain or compete with them. And granted, Messi is a genius, but when he played in France, which was not a you know a spectacular, it's not a league of the same level as the Italian of the, the the English league or the Spanish league. He wasn't running as rampant as this. This is this is just actually to me almost uh, embarrassing to watch. I agree. I think that's a really fine point. I would ask this follow-up question, which is that lots of fine soccer players somewhat past their prime from Europe have come and played in MLS and none of them has torn it up the way that Messi has. So what is it? Well, he's the greatest of all, he's one of the greatest of all time. So you would, I mean, there's, yeah, but I mean, you know, you had Zlatan was here. You had, you know, Rooney here well past his prime. These are, these are very solid, excellent players and they were fine. Like they had, you know, Zlatan was fine here, but yeah, Zlatan, Zlatan is a player who kind of needs to participate in a little bit more of a system, just given the nature of the player that he is. And Messi is somebody who can create unto himself. I mean, that's just the nature of his genius is that he can make something out of nothing. And also to tie the thing back to Joe Biden in the end, Messi is a player who's kind of aged successfully. He's figured out a way to, um, uh, to, to, to operate the, the great, uh, the great Frankfurt school critic, uh, Theodore Adorno describes something called the late style. So like when Beethoven wrote his last quartets, uh, as people get closer to death, their artistic mode changes and Messi's mode has changed. Like he's figured out how to economize and how to operate in a way consistent with whatever physical diminishment he has. That was a classic Frank Four. That was pretty that great. Was awesome. I gotta say, that beat my chatter. So my chatter is about a really nice exhibit I saw at the National Portrait Gallery here in Washington, One Life, Frederick Douglass. Uh, and it's an exhibit about Douglass. And it's, it's uh, lovely because Douglass was the most photographed man of the 19th century, apparently. He was photographed a ton. And so there are all these great photos of this man who's one of the true American icons, the true American hero. Um, and it, it introduced me to something. There's a, there was a book uh, open. So there was a, a, one of the exhibits was a book that was of Douglas's speeches and it had his, um, it had his, uh, what to the American slave is your 4th of July speech, which I did not know about. I don't know if you Ooh, guys really? know about it. Yeah, yeah. I just felt like so, um, ignorant. This is, this is a speech he gave on July 5th, actually, in 1852 in Rochester about the 4th of July. And um, my God, it's the greatest rhetoric you've ever seen. And it's it's incredible. Um, I mean, I'll read a passage of it. I just imagine this being delivered by Frederick Douglass, not to me, not by me, but it's so moving and so powerful. And you feel like why don't people give speeches like this anymore? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer that I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sound of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass fronted impudence, your shout of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on the earth more nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Anyway. It was. I strongly recommend this exhibit on Frederick Douglass. One one thing I'd love to know is why was he the most photographed subject of the 19th century? Just given the racism of the society that he inhabited, I mean, it's 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 an incredible fact. I don't know the answer. He he apparently wrote a, he wrote a lot about photography, and he wrote a lot about he was really interested in photography himself, and he had he, he there's really good uh, descriptions of how he. He invented poses for for por photographic portraiture that hadn't been used before. He would look directly at the camera, for example, and he would put his hands in particular ways to emphasize the, the forcefulness of what he was trying to convey. And these were new, I mean, he like invented new poses. He was a great model. And so I think he loved the medium and therefore sought out opportunities to use the medium effectively. 
All right, GabFest listeners, write in if you have more to add. That was actually totally interesting, and we'll try to report back. Listeners, you have also sent us so many great chatters, so many great chatters, so many. There are too many for us to keep up with. Please keep them coming, though, at GabFest at Slate.com. It's one of the real highlights of my week is reading through the chatters you've sent and going clicking on links and listening to things and reading things. Uh, and our listener chatter this week comes from Nicole Dorn of Belmont, Mass. Hi, GabFest. This is Nicole Dorn from Belmont, Massachusetts. My chatter is an article in the September issue of The Atlantic Monthly by Jennifer Senior titled The Ones We Sent Away. The author tells the story of how she and her mother reconnected with her aunt, her mother's sister, who was institutionalized at a very young age because of her intellectual and developmental disability. The author movingly describes both the pain her mother felt, even after so many years, of having her sister taken away, while also introducing you to the awe-inspiring family who cared for her aunt in her later years and gave her a stable, loving environment where she could thrive in ways she never had before. In telling the story, Senior examines the cruel history of institutionalizing children born with genetic defects and contrasts that with the experience of many children born today with similar disabilities. I hope you find this article as moving as I did and recommend having some tissues on hand while you read it. I know I needed them. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is senior director for Podcast Ops. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at Slate GabFest. We're on Twitter ostensibly at at Slate Lab GabFest. And you can tweet chatter to us there. Better yet, email us at GabFest at Slate.com. Or better yet still, come to our live show in Madison on October 25th. And you can get tickets for that by going to Slate.com slash GabFest Live. For Emily Bazelon and Frank Four, and for Frank's great new book, The Last Politician, which you must go out and buy and read. I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Frank, you and I know mystery here. We are friends. We're old friends. Um, and so I've been present as you've been reporting this book. And this book started out as a book about, I think it started out as a book about like Biden's transition in first hundred days or so. And now here we are years later, and it's a book about two full years of the Biden administration. What happened? Oh, God. Um, well, I guess the book ballooned on me. Um, I got to um, the first 100-day mark, and honestly, I didn't have enough material to fill out a book. And so I was looking for a pretext to avoid that deadline. And then Biden proposed his uh, Build Back Better bill, which would have expanded the social safety net and his infrastructure bill. And so I went to my publisher and I pleaded for more time to be able to follow the story to the end in, in hopes that I would have enough material to write a book. And then that Build Back Better bill just kept dragging on because they couldn't get Joe Manchin over the line. And I kept telling my publisher, oh, it's it's going to pass, uh, which I didn't fully believe, but I felt like was like a credible means of procrastination. And uh, then it died at the end of Biden's first year. And I was like, oh, I'm so screwed here. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.